Welcome back to Plenary Session. Some of you may know that I've been in Europe, and I've been giving some talks here. The last talk I gave was in Denmark. It's on real-world evidence. What are the strengths? What are the limitations? What can it do and what can't it do? And that's the talk I'm going to make available today on this Plenary Session audio feed. For people who are interested in the slides, I've got just the thing for you. Go to developdrugs.substack.com, the drug development letter, and subscribe, and you can get the slides right now. I'm going to post it right now. And I will be back in Plenary Session Studio soon to be covering some more clinical studies. In this video, not video, audio, in this audio recording, I wish it were a video, but I didn't bring my camera. In this audio recording, I tell the audience the same thing that I'll tell you, which is if you listen to this podcast and you're a big fan and you really want to work with us, you're welcome to email us. That's one. And two, if you have ideas for papers we should cover, go ahead and send those to us. You know how to find me, plenary session podcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on the contact me page of my website. Let me know what you want us to cover or tweet at plenary session podcast, the account, and we will try to do that. So on that note, I will turn to this lecture. It's on real world evidence. I've given some other lectures in Europe. I might put that audio out there too. And if you want the slides for any of these lectures, and if you really want to keep up to date with cancer drug development and drug policy, follow the drug development letter. Until next time. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for the kind introduction. Thank you for inviting me here to speak today. It's my pleasure to get to talk to you all about how real-world data can complement randomized controlled trials. And uh, you may be wondering a little bit about my background. I thought I'd introduce myself. I'm a professor at UCSF. Uh, in America, of course, we're hematology oncology. I trained in both. Uh, the University of California, San Francisco, we have three hospitals in our network. Uh, one is the University Hospital, uh, where everyone is a sub-sub-specialist. I was saying that we have someone to focus on right breast and left breast cancer. We got one for each. Uh, but I work at the county and the veterans hospital where you have to kind of take care of everything. So I'm in clinic two days a week. I do service 14 weeks a year, and I do hematology, oncology, and everything that comes under that, including von Willebrand, iron deficiency anemia, colon, lung, pancreas, breast, myeloma, CML. But I don't do too much brain, and I don't do too much gyne cancer, and I don't do radiotherapy. So that's my disclosure. I know nothing about radiotherapy. You'll have to teach me that. Um, I teach epidemiology to the medical students and master's students, and I run a research team, which you'll see some of our work. Um, okay, and if you like this talk, you can learn more about the kind of specific work we do. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, I host a podcast, and I wrote this book about oncology and drug approval that may interest some of you. Okay, so real-world evidence, you know? And by the way, what's not the real world? Is there a fictitious world? What is this real world, I hear? So we'll talk about what is it, what are the benefits of real-world evidence, what are the downsides? And I think that will be kind of the outline of this talk. And I'll try to go till save some time for questions. So what is real-world evidence? I think when people talk about real-world evidence, exactly as Marco suggests, we're trying to get evidence that's applicable to the patient in your clinic. And the patient in your clinic might be 10 years older than the clinical trial patient. The patient in your clinic might have bilirubin 2.2 and would not be eligible for a trial, perhaps. 
Patient in your clinic has low platelets. Patient in your clinic is elderly, takes seven medicine. And in many ways, the trial data may not be as applicable to the person in your clinic with other medical problem, older, frailer. And that's what we're trying to get at with real-world evidence. I think technically pragmatic randomized trials are a form of real-world evidence. You randomize people, but very few restrictions on who can come in. So they can be old, they can have comorbidities. And I think we saw several of these large pragmatic randomized trials during the pandemic by the UK recovery group, where they basically randomized the next 6,000 people that come in the hospital with COVID-19. We've written previously in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncologists that we can learn some things from oncologists can learn from these large pandemic pragmatic trials. But of course, observational studies are also part and parcel of real world evidence. And observational studies serve several roles, I think. It can be used to risk stratify. In all of the tumor types, there is some risk stratification score, some, some type of score that's typically derived from observational data, including staging. Staging itself is derived from observational data. Observational data can provide time trends are things getting better? Are they getting worse? Are we making progress? And finally, observational data can also try to give you the answer to does our treatment work? It's for causal inference as well. Can we figure out if this therapy is benefiting our patients? That's the part that I think is the trickiest we'll talk about. So in my opinion, the, the virtues of real world evidence, what makes it great is we can gauge how we're doing. Are we making progress against cancer? We can provide information about populations that are not well represented in clinical trials, which ironically are the majority of patients we see in clinic. And the limits, I think, what real world evidence can't yet do, I say yet, who knows, the future may change things. I think it cannot yet tell us if our interventions really fundamentally work. So I'll try to persuade you of this. So how are we doing? How are we doing? Let's see some examples of real world evidence to tell us how we're doing. And you have to forgive me. The first example is CML. I promise it's the only hematology example. After this is only gonna be oncology, lung, 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 breast, okay? But I had to put this because this is, this is a very good paper. And it comes, I think, from Sweden, okay? This is a data set from Sweden, and I believe it's pretty comprehensive. It's all the people in Sweden who had a diagnosis of chronic myeloid leukemia. Okay, and they're plotting something really interesting on this one figure. This is about a woman. Imagine the woman. She's 55 years old, okay, and she has CML, Sweden, many decades. Okay, let me walk you through. Number one, the yellow line. What is this yellow line? The yellow line says if this 55-year-old woman was diagnosed with CML in 1974, how many years will she live? She's 55. She'll live three to four years and then she's gonna die. This is the median life expectancy in Sweden for women given CML 1974. Tragic, her life is shortened. What does the blue line tell you? The blue line tells you how long a 55-year-old woman lived in Sweden who did not have CML diagnosis. She would have lived 27 years had she not been given that diagnosis. This gap between yellow and blue is what we call years of life lost. She lost 22 years of her life by having CML. Okay, this is the Swedish data. They're pooling you know, tens of thousands of women over decades to build this figure. And it really tells a story. Now look, 2010, the gap is gone. The years of life lost is within the error of the measurement, actually. It's within two years, that's the confidence interval. We have closed the gap. What a success in CML. 
Remarkable story. It would be a death sentence if someone told you, and now you're living almost as long as, you know, the population. By the way, the blue line goes up over time. Why? Because in Scandinavian countries, life expectancy is going up with time. Not in America, of course. We actually, it's going down. Sadly, you know, we're not so good about basic things. Okay, but it's going up over time. Okay, but we close the gap. Great story. I think this, you look at this figure and it tells you why CML is the success. Why we've tried an oncology solid tumor to copy so much from CML. Imatinib came out in 2001, and that's the single reason this curve is closing. There's nothing else, actually. I sometimes ask the audience, but I won't ask you for the sake of time. I say, why do you think the curve is going up? And this is why it's going up from here to here. It's going up because we're improving the diagnosis, more CBCs, lead time bias, better supportive care, interferon, allotransplant. But why does it start to bend really uh, steeply? And the answer is, because of imatinib, you're going to say it's bending before the drug is available. So how is it doing that? Does anyone know the answer? Uh, good question. Trials. Uh, the trial was running in Finland, but actually there were no trials running in Sweden at the time. And also this is population data, so you'd have to put a lot of people on trial to bend the curve. Any other guesses? It's a tough question. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yes, correct. Marco, very, very good answer. <laughs> he will already pass my class. Uh, yes, so his point is, well, his point is right, exactly right, that among 100 women diagnosed in 1995, some of them are dying with CML, but then the few that were alive in 2001, that 30%, they start taking the pill, and their life expectancy is corrected by the pill, and so they're actually pulling the survival curve up in the years prior to approval, exactly as Marco says. Okay? This is CML. I want you to remember it because we'll tell another story in oncology. ALK. All of us who treat lung cancer, we will tell you these ALK drugs are remarkable, like Alextrial, Electinib, Brigatinib, Lorlatinib. They're remarkable drugs. I have personally given crushed up Lorlatinib down a Daboff tube to a woman who had brain mets, was practically comatose. She walked out of the hospital. Okay, these are remarkable drugs, the response rate of ALK inhibitors. Okay, They're, we call them game changers. Is it really the game? Has it changed? I ask myself. So a few years ago, I asked David Benjamin, who is a fellow at UC Irvine. I said, you know, let's look at this life expectancy. Let's try to do what, this, what they did in Sweden, but look for ALK inhibitor. Okay, first thing we note. This is the cumulative duration of treatment. So when you're diagnosed with cancer, the cumulative median duration of treatment and this is actually the upper bound. This is really kind of what we're getting in the best trials. And these are, if you have, you know, uh, regular old lung cancer, no driver mutation, okay, and you get checkpoint inhibitor plus chemo, you're living, you know, the current trials, median survival, you know, pretty good, more than a year. It wasn't that way when I started in oncology. And if you have HER2, TREC fusion, BRAF, RET, MET, EGFR, ALK, ROS1, look at that duration of treatment. I mean, ROS1 is putting out over six years median survival. ALK, NHL-ALK4, I mean, you know, it's actually maybe even a little bit better now. This is a success story. I mean, these were people who, you know, when I started in oncology, we did not have any drug. Now we can crush it, put it on a Daboff tube and, and bring people back from death. Okay? But one thing David Benjamin notes is that these cancers don't happen to you at the same age. Lung cancer from smoking happens to you when you're 71 years old on average in America. But ALK rearranged lung cancer happens to you when you're 52 years old on average in America. 
At EGFR, lung cancer happens to you a little bit older, but uh, uh, ROS1 happens to younger people. And here I'm showing you in the blue bar how long the person lived before the doctor told them they had lung cancer, and the orange is showing you how good the therapies are, but the gap of years of life loss, this is US life expectancy, by the way, not uh, any other country, the gap is actually still bigger for ALK. You remember this figure from Sweden, CML. This is what we want in oncology. I'm gonna show you the same figure, every ALK inhibitor used in a row. Hmm. So, you know, I, why do I think of this figure? I think of this figure when I think of the woman who I had to take care of with ALK lung cancer. She brings her three children to every appointment because she has no daycare. And we tell her, we have a game changer for you. That may be true, but we should never forget, this is the gap. So we're still losing more life years than we can save. So we should have the humility to acknowledge our drugs are not yet perfect. And that's what real world data can teach us. This gap is still 20 years. Okay, so let's talk for a second about solid tumor. We have a lot of success in solid tumor. I think I'm excited, checkpoint inhibitor, you know, so many new classes of drugs coming, always some revolution. But if you look at consecutive drug approvals in solid tumor, we have to admit, it looks kind of sobering. The median change in progression-free survival, this is 71 solid tumor drugs approved by US FDA, is 2.3 months, and for overall survival is 2.1 months. You know, we do get some uh, Cleopatra-like results. I think this is Cleopatra. Uh, but we get a lot of modest differences. You know, oncology is full of modest differences. So I think sometimes I take stock. Previously, in a series of papers, we tried to estimate how many people with cancer, metastatic cancer, are eligible for these different classes of drugs. This, low, this line down here, this is genome-targeted drugs. You know, the drugs that we have genome targets, such as BRAF drugs and ALK drugs and IDH mutation drugs, uh, it's still a low percentage. We're about 12% currently of US cancer patients are eligible for them. Checkpoint inhibitor, just ipilimumab. So from 2011 to this year, this is just melanoma. You know, 2%, 1% to 2% of all cancer deaths. Then we get non-small cell lung cancer checkpoint inhibitor. We get small cell, HCC, urothelial, RCC. So we're at checkpoint inhibitor having nearly 50% market share. Meanwhile, let's not forget cytotoxics still have 80% market share. There are two lines for everything. The orange line is the responders, cumulative responders, and the uh, blue line is the percent of cancer patients eligible. So I show this just to take stock that even though we're so excited about all the new things, and we should be, you know, genomic uptake is still very low, and more people in your clinic are not eligible for any genomic drug than eligible for genomic drugs. Okay, the second benefit of real-world data. I think real-world evidence can teach you about populations not well represented in trials, which turns out to be a lot of people you care for. This is an analysis by US FDA where they compare elderly patients in clinical trials for US drug approval, which are the same trials that EMA uses, and a seven-year experience of FDA, okay? And these results are a little old, but actually they have a repeat analysis in JCL a few years ago. It's the same result, so I use the older paper. These bar graphs tell the story. The tall bar says, among all the people with cancer in America who take an FDA drug, how many are over 65? Answer, 60%. How many over 70? Maybe nearly 50%. How many over 75? And the answer is more than a third. In the clinical trials submitted for drug approval, 
How many are over 65? That's the short bar. 70, short bar. 75, short bar. You know, our trials are picking patients who are 10 years younger than the average age. And this matters because the, the effectiveness of a drug depends, one, on how well the patient can tolerate the side effects and how much you can push the drug dose. And a lot of times you have difficulty pushing the dose. Here's an example, serafinib and HCC. I remember in ASCO when this was presented, this is the SHARP study, serafinib versus best supportive care, hepatocellular carcinoma, randomized control trial, I think Joseph Yove and colleagues, New England Journal, 2007. And you remember it actually got a standing ovation because it was the first drug in history to ever improve OS and HCC. Nothing had ever done it before. Doxorubicin was given, but no OS benefit in RCT. And you can see placebo, median survival, eight months, serafinib, 11 months, and hazard ratio something like 0.75. I would say this is a marginal benefit. It's a real step forward, but it's not a huge step. Okay, we could talk about a Tezobev later in the Q&A if you want. Uh, you know, it works if you have really good liver function, you know, and it really works then, but uh, it's not great for everybody. But this is marginal benefit, but this is ideal patients. These patients were younger than average HCC age. They all had very good Child's Pew scores. You know, these were the best HCC patients. A few years later, Stacy Dusitzina took everybody in U.S. Medicare data set, and she, I'm going to show you the curve in a second, takes everybody in Medicare. First thing she says is this is the major American insurer for 65 and up. She takes everyone with HCC who took serafinib, and she just plots their survival curve. And then she does propensity score matched analytic cohort and plots their survival curve. So people with the same propensity to get serafinib who happened not to get serafinib, okay? So the same drug now, decade later, real world data, I'm gonna show you the two curves, people who got it, people who didn't get it. No benefit. Now, of course, the propensity score, as you'll see by the end of the talk, maybe it's not perfect. Maybe there was something there and she's missing it. But here's the other key point I want to show you. The median survival here is 4.5 months. Patients in the United States who took serafinib in the real world, they live half as long as patients who took placebo in the clinical trial from 10 years earlier. What does that tell us about the trial? The trial is so unrepresentative of our HCC patients. Their survival has nothing to do with HCC in my clinic. It's irrelevant. And we all know when you give serafinib in your clinic, I had, a per, I had a veteran come back and throw the pills at me and said, this is terrible, you know, do better. And that's the truth because it's not a very tolerable drug. And I think you, you know, a lot of this stuff is true with Imbrave 150 and the Bev. You know, the, the benefits are shrinking and shrinking in our actual clinical practice. And at some point, is there anything left we have in our hands? I wonder. Trials don't reflect real patients. This is uh, by Lou Fehrenbacher from Kaiser. He took randomized control trial exclusion criteria from two older lung cancer trials. These were you know, seminal studies from about a decade and a half ago. And he applied them to the 400 consecutive patients who walked in his door. So here he has a major insurance company in California. Whoever walks in the door, he's saying, would you have been eligible for these trials that we're using to guide your practice? And the answer was, with just the standard RCT eligibility criteria, only a third were eligible. But when you added the anti-angiogenic criteria, only, which is like you know, prohibitions on stroke because we're giving bevacizumab, only one in five is eligible. And the truth is, when you start to add all the other implicit and explicit criteria, the people who make it on our trial are so dissimilar from those who walk in our door. 
And that means that trial results, to some degree, don't answer the question that we face in our practice, which is really the, the root interest in real-world evidence. What about the person in front of me? So, and I can't believe he remembered this paper we wrote in 2016, where we actually argue that overall survival in a randomized controlled trial presented to the US FDA, should, you shouldn't think about it as a clinical endpoint, it's actually a surrogate endpoint. It's a surrogate endpoint for overall survival in your actual practice. And the purpose of drug development in every country is to approve drugs that improve outcomes for that country. Most cancer drugs have modest or marginal benefits. A marginal benefit in an ideal population may have no benefit in your clinic. And so maybe overall survival is a surrogate. And the people call this the efficacy effectiveness gap. There's a gap between what we wish were happening and what might be happening. And without real world evidence, you'll never know. You'll practice for a decade, and you'll just assume the person I saw in my clinic, they didn't tolerate serafinib well, but it does work, right? But her paper might suggest that what are we doing as a society, spending so much money on serafinib and these drugs, uh, if they're really adding almost nothing as we're giving it? Okay. So I think this is a major virtue of real-world evidence, especially in this country where your data sets are some of the world's best data sets of completeness and linkage of people. The potential to ask questions about new costly drugs that are coming to the global marketplace uh, is tremendous. And I'm sure we're going to hear some really great examples of work you're all doing, because I think this is really important work to draw attention to what we still need to improve upon in oncology. But let's talk about where real-world evidence, you know, what it can't quite yet do. And I think it can't quite yet tell us if our interventions work. Okay, so imagine a patient with breast cancer. You know, of course you can come in with localized early stage breast cancer and you will get something like neoadjuvant, chemo or, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, maybe hormonal therapy, maybe, of course, surgery, maybe radiotherapy. All these things depend. The guideline, the algorithm is getting bigger and bigger every day. So big. That's why we had to have a rest, left, right breast and left breast oncologist just to figure this out, okay? But then every so often, unfortunately, somebody presents with de novo metastatic disease. De novo metastatic. So when they present, they have stage four. And worst case scenario, you have mets to the brain. For a long time, surgeons wondered, if I have a patient in front of me has a large primary breast mass and just a few metastases, small metastases, they look so good though, should I resect the breast? You know, of course, yes, the horse has left the barn, the metastases have come, but maybe the primary cause of death will be the, the breast mass, or maybe it'll keep seeding, and maybe there is a benefit to removing the breast. And I want to draw a distinction here. I'm not talking about a palliative benefit. I think we will all agree that a weeping, fungating mass needs some intervention, but I'm talking about doing this with the goal of improving overall survival, that sometimes we remove the primary breast in metastatic breast cancer because we wanted to extend survival. And if you don't believe me, we did this. Let me show you. We did this as a meta-analysis of observational studies done over decades asking if surgical resection of the primary tumor in stage four breast cancer improves survival. And the authors looked at all of these studies. This study, this study, this study, this study. This odds ratio one is means that there's no difference. Odds ratios better than one favor surgery, okay? Every single study, look at those point estimates. Look at that conference and look at the overall Odds ratio 2.32 in favor of surgery. Surgery saves lives, the authors would have you believe, even when you have metastatic disease. And you'll say, okay, it's a small study. Actually, this study is, I think, I'm going to show you in the next slide. It's like 27,000 people are in this study. 15,000 get the breast surgery. 
This is a huge, huge analysis over decades, many countries, I'll show you. Actually, I won't show you, I didn't put that slide slide down. Hold on, I won't show you. Then we have, of course, now randomized control trial data. This was done in India, and they published in Lancet Oncology, local regional treatment versus no treatment of the primary tumor in metastatic breast cancer. Same clinical question, randomized control trial. Okay? You know the results. Nothing. It didn't improve survival. Totally negative. Let's compare the two. In the observational study, we had 28,000 people who were enrolled in, not enrolled, they were retrospectively reviewed in this study over 35 years. In the randomized trial, it was 350 people, 10 years, to answer the question definitively. The observational study, actually, I estimate it costs 500 times as much money. Why? Because 15,000 people had to have the surgery. Somebody had to pay for that surgery. It's 500 times more expensive. People always say randomized trials are expensive, expensive. It's expensive, but you have to consider if you just let practices debut, you're gonna do it on tens of thousands more people before someone comes later to ask if it makes sense. And actually, the number of women who were exposed to what turned out to only provide you know, the morbidity of surgery without mortality benefit, it was 15,000 here and only 170 here. So my argument is from some questions, Randomization, not only does it give you the right answer, it's reliable, causally, it actually minimizes the number of people ultimately exposed to the inadequate strategy. It's actually cheaper. We have a paper where we model this across a number of parameters. It's actually cheaper to do the randomized study than let your population just take the drug and run wild with it or take the surgery and just do it. And it's actually faster because 35 years and they still are debate. They were still debating. That's why they ran the randomized trial. 35 years and finally it's been settled. I think. Now, I just want to put that distinction again. Of course, I'm not talking about women who have fungating and painful breast mat, where I think it maybe requires some local attention. Okay, I'm talking about for improvement less. Okay. Okay, you're going to say, this is just an anecdote. You, this is an anecdote of one, and of one, one story you have found. Okay, let's get into the data. The data is the concordance between observational data and randomized controlled trials, oncology, same questions, Let's get into the history. It's a big history. It goes back to 2000, New England Journal of Medicine. There were two paired papers. A comparison of observational studies and randomized control trials for the clinical effectiveness of medical products. And this was, now there may be 100 papers in this thread from 2000 to the present day, 23 years. And the first studies were really kind of, they said that actually observational studies, they're really good. They get the same answer like most of the time. Now just remember, a coin flip gets the same answer Five out of ten. I mean, a coin is five out of ten right on a randomized trial. But they're getting it. They're, they're, they're like six out of ten. They're happy. But uh, okay, let's look at how they do their show the results. Every time they do these studies, they, they have a plot like this. Okay, what is this plot? On one axis, they'll plot the relative risk in the randomized study. On the other axis, they'll plot the relative risk of the observational study. And if the observational study was faithful to the randomized result, the dots would fall along the line. Of course, it's never perfect. So if most of the dots are within this kind of confidence interval, you'll say that like, yeah, that's pretty good. Like these studies, these studies on the line are like super concordant. They're giving the exact same point estimate. That's like very good. Okay, mortality, non-mortality, this is what we see. I'm not gonna belabor that figure. I'm gonna show you the, the single biggest paper, the best paper. This is the JCO. Marco probably knows the year. I don't know the year. I think this was maybe 2014. This is Sony and colleagues. This is Daniel Spratt's group, and he's a radiation oncologist, I think, in Cleveland. And he is doing the biggest analysis in oncology of clinical questions where there are both observational studies and randomized studies. And this is his figure. 
Okay. I like to color code the figure. I like to color code because blue means this is, it saved, the observational study says saves lives. Randomized study says saves lives. This is observational study says is harmful. Randomized study says is harmful. This is the agreement bu bu buckets. We agree. So it's useful. Saves lives? Yes. Harmful? Yes. But what about these two? This is where there's discordance, where if you trusted one but not the other, you would be doing surgery to remove a woman's breast when she has metastatic breast cancer. This is where it goes one way in one but not the other. And the answer is only 40% of paired questions had the same conclusion. So 60% of the time, we were wrong. And actually, I do think a coin is probably, might be on par with the, the, the kinetic that has a similar answer. I think it's low. I mean, that's not good. And when you take the randomized control trial, the observational studies that did not agree with the randomized studies, okay, when they disagreed, look at where the hazard ratio of the observational study is. Okay, so this means the randomized trial basically found for most of these studies, it did not work. And look at what the observational study said the hazard ratio was, 0.7. Why is it 0.7 and not 0.2 or 0.8? I think it's not 0.2 because if I did the observational study, actually if my postdoc did the observational study, and she told me she got hazard ratio 0.2, I'd say you had to make a mistake because that's too good. It's too good. No one's going to believe us. We're going to try to publish this, and the first thing the reviewer is going to say is, too good to be true. But then if she comes and says it's 0.9, I say, it's boring. They're not going to like that. 0.9 isn't exciting, but 0.7 is perfect. It's the perfect answer. Yes, let's publish that. And I do think that there is this bias, that for many of these questions, we are asking the question tens of thousands of times, and the published literature is just a tiny snapshot of all the analytic plans that have been run. And it's filtered for what is plausible and believable, but not for what is true. Why does this happen? Why are we so enthusiastic in observational studies, but we're just in randomized trial, it doesn't work out as well? And the answer is confounding by indication. Confounding by indication means that you did the therapy on the patient because they looked better. The person who comes in your office and they're in a wheelchair, or they're walking in, they're on O2, they don't look good, they have no social support, they're coughing up blood, they say they're in bed all day, you say, oh, this person, they don't, they're not a candidate for this surgery on metastatic, it's metastatic after all. I shouldn't do the surgery on this person. But the person who walks in that's young, that's healthy, that looks bouncing the step, that says, I still feel great. You think I should maybe consider removing the primary breast tumor? You say, yeah, I don't know, maybe, but you're the right person for it. You could tolerate the surgery. And that is the eternal bias of oncology. We'll always do, every time I read a retrospective study, patients who received EPOC do better than those who received CHOP with DLBCL. Or patients who, whatever it is aggressive, whatever the aggressive option is, always looks better. Why? Because who do you do aggressive things to? People who look like they can tolerate it. And that is confounding by indication. There's almost no variable in, in EMR data or in uh, administrative data that can undo this. It's the doctor's eye. And the doctor's eye is creating the bias. And that's why it's really problematic. Okay, I'll show you a single, the, the, what I think is the most interesting study. So the limitation of the Sony paper was they're looking in the literature for examples where there are both study designs, observational and randomized. But that is a unique subset of questions. That's not every question. That's questions where we had observational data, and then somebody said, this is not good enough, let's randomize. And they did that. But that's not fair, because what if there's a bias in those particular questions? So a very nice paper by Kumar and colleagues tried to, let's be more systematic. Here's what they did. 
They took 120 recommendations from NCCN, all based on randomized trials. And then for each 120 questions, they ran a propensity score weighted observational study. So they're creating a deck of observational results using the National Clinical Trials Database in US for questions that they already have the randomized answer to. Okay, they're creating the observational literature. And that's why God invented medical students to do 120, <laughs> 120 projects just for one paper. So you publish 120 papers. Why are you doing one? Okay, uh, here's what they found. The observational results. 55% of the time, the observational study they ran, this is propensity score weighting, which is a little more sophisticated analytic technique that's in favor these days. They found it was beneficial. Yes, do it, saving lives. Radiate that lung cancer bed. Give the surgery, give the drug, yes. 45% said no, don't do it. But now they have the answer key. They can look for the randomized result. Only 40% of the time was it beneficial. And 67% of the time when they said it didn't work, it didn't work. A little higher. So if you say it doesn't work, it probably doesn't work. If you say it works, actually mostly doesn't work. Doesn't work is the, is the usual answer here. Doesn't work, doesn't work, okay? But that means these people were right, and these people were actually right. Actually, these were the benefit. Even This was, this was wrong here. This was, uh, this, uh, okay, these were both wrong, but anyway, let me sort it out. Okay, here, I sort it out. I sort it out. The bottom line is 55 of observational says it works. 45 says no benefit. 47% of the time it was working, and 63% of the time, sorry, oh, there's a math error there. Okay, I'm off by a decimal 10 point. Okay, anyway, you get the picture. You get the picture. You get the picture. It mostly doesn't work. They thought it worked. And actually, there's errors of both directions, actually. Sometimes you're dismissing something, but actually there, some of these people think, think they do work, yeah? So this is the crux of the problem. Bad math. Okay, now the last thing, because I want to wrap up with time. You know, these days I, I always hear somebody say, you know, you know, we can't do the randomized study. Did you know that smoking is not good for you? I said, I've heard that, yeah. And then they say, did you know there's never been a randomized study that makes people smoke and measures that it's harmful? I say, I think that, that is true, yes. And then they say, did you know that if you jump out of an airplane, it's probably better to do it with a parachute on? I say, I would guess that that is right, yeah. And then they say, did you know there's never been a randomized study of that? Okay, so when are, when are these random, why are we even doing these randomized, where are we doing these randomized studies? I went to the movies the other day, I didn't have a randomized study to decide what movie to go to. Where are these randomized studies for? Okay, so we tried to outline in this paper. Okay, I always say, imagine an axis about human health. In the middle of the axis are things we do for human health with no net effect. Like right now, if I eat uh, five blueberries, I think we'll all agree it's probably, you're not gonna live any longer for five blueberries. You know, it's not gonna do much. Actually, I think a lot of what we do in day-to-day -day life, we're obsessed about our, you know, our health. Our, the, I think most of it is close to the null axis. It's mostly null. But imagine at one extreme, the worst thing you can do to somebody's health and the best thing you do to somebody's health at the other extreme, okay? So what's the worst thing you can do for someone's health? Can I have an example? Somebody said it. Somebody said, shoot him. Okay, good answer. I once gave this talk to healthcare professionals and somebody said, put potassium in their IV. I said, oh, and they, and they said it fast. They said it really fast. I was so scared. <laughs> so scared at what they've been thinking about it. I just made a note, different, okay. Okay, so I think shoot somebody in a vital body part or they get hit by a car. Did you know there's never been a randomized study that shooting somebody's harmful? You know, it's actually true, there's never been. But you don't need to shoot too many people to know not a good idea. Okay, what about help a person? The best thing you can do for somebody. 
I gave you one, the parachute. And the other example is later tomorrow when you see me on the, looking at my phone and then the bus is coming and you pull me back, I'll say, you know, you saved my life. I was looking on Twitter, but you thank you who grabbed me, pulled me back. The bus was right up to hit me. Um, pushing someone out of the way of a speeding vehicle. Okay, it's the best thing you can do. Actually, wearing a parachute, did you know, there are f at least a few reports of someone falling from an airplane without a parachute and they survived. So it's not 100% fatal. And there's actually a few people who jump with the parachute and they actually do die because it doesn't open. And the Americans keep good statistics on that. For one thing, that's the only thing we keep good. It's three deaths per 10 million jumps. So the absolute risk reduction of mortality for parachute is 99.999997 over 10 minutes. That's really good. And actually, there's nothing we do in medicine that's that good. And I'll give you some examples. But there's nothing we, as much as we think we're good, nothing is 99.9997 in 10 minutes. Even tourniquet is not as good, is not that good, okay? Um, what about smoking? Smoke making, smoking in the original Bradford Hill papers, odds ratio 20 of harm. Eating bacon in cumulative meta-analysis, odds ratio 1.75, extra serving of bacon. It's modestly harm. Odds ratio 20 is huge. I mean, that's a huge harm. You could see that harm from space, okay? But what about what we do in our clinics? We don't try to do harm to anybody. We try to make you better. We offer things of putative benefit, not putative harm. And actually, we do offer mostly things with modest to marginal effect sizes. Most of what we do it may help you, but not a lot, just a little bit. But little is better than nothing. And actually, randomized trials live in this cell. Randomized trials are for interventions of putative benefit, not harm. You wouldn't do one for smoking, actually you do risk factor epidemiology. You don't do one of shooting someone in the head, actually you just use your eyes. You don't do one of benzene in the river, you do risk factor epidemiology. And you mitigate if you think the level of risk is sufficient. You use risk factor epidemiology over here. Here is where you randomize. You randomize because it's possibly a benefit, but at best it's modest. And why do you randomize? Because they're the interventions where our bias, our optimism, and our profiteering may result in an incorrect assessment of the effect. And only the carefully done randomized trial can separate my hope from the truth. And we need that if we're all going to be paying for healthcare together. Observational studies can be done on everything, but they really work best in risk factor epidemiology, I think. And over here, I think they often offer dubious conclusions for three reasons. One, the one I mentioned, confounding. Two, I think, and this is beyond the scope of this talk, but there's problems with the time zero. In randomized trials, we all start at the same time. But in retrospective studies, the time is actually the hardest thing you face. You don't even know it's a problem. That's why it's such a big problem. It's actually the biggest problem. And then multiplicity. Multiplicity means you're running it actually more times than you think you're doing. And the results you're reading are just the tip of the iceberg. For most questions, it's been run 10 to the power of 5 times as much as paper has been published on it. All right, I won't belabor that. But what about parachutes? I talked about parachutes. Surely we have some parachutes in oncology and medicine. The answer is uh, we do. I'll give you one example. Do we have parachutes? You remember this paper. This is rectal cancer, stage 2-3. Mismatch repair deficient. Very interesting group of people because they really respond to PD-1 blockade. In this case, dostarlamab. You know what dostarlamab is? It's like pembrolizumab, except instead of Coke, it's like Pepsi. Except we have Coke and Pepsi, but we have Pembro, Nevo, Derva, Atezo, Simiplumab, Dostarlamab, and 20 more coming. 
Why? I don't know why. I don't know why we have so many, but they're all, the, you know, many of them are the same. Okay. In this study, I think people said, you know, small sample size. It's small sample size, yes, but it's actually quite provocative. We all know the standard of care for people with locally advanced rectal cancer, and it is something that maybe we'll agree is not pleasant. I mean, neoadjuvant, chemo, RT, followed by surgery, even if you're in PAPCR, this current standard, really, a lot of people do it. It's not, un it's not pleasant. I mean, I think many of us will agree. I know radiation people always push back. They say, oh, it's not so bad. And, you know, some, it's not so bad. It's not, I'd say it's, it's not, I wouldn't want it if I didn't have to have it, okay? And in fact, if you look at the NCCN guidelines, yeah, now you've got to do Folfox, Kbox, Zalota, RT. Oh, my goodness. And, it, it's, and the total, anything that has total therapy in there, I don't like it. You know, that scares me to hear total therapy, total neoadjuvant therapy, chemotherapy, short course RT, restaging, and then you get the surgery if you're good at the end. You get a surgery as your reward. I think it's rough. <laughs> the outcomes are not, have not been bad. I mean, we do cure people. Let's be honest. We've cured people for a long time with this condition, and, and that's good. Um, these are the cure rates sort of historically. I think the, the mismatch repair deficient people, they have always had slightly better, uh, 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 or at least some series think they have slightly better outcomes, but you know, maybe it's a little bit disputed. Enter dostarlamab. And they took those same patients who were scheduled to get all that stuff done, and then they just administered dostarlamab every three weeks for nine doses, and then they repeated the evaluation. And if you had any residual disease, you were off the protocol. You got to do what you're supposed to do, okay? This is how they run their phase two study. But if you were in complete response clinically, you got to non-operative follow-up. Okay, they gave you a chance to skip that all. And you know what they found because this was the, uh, what is this called, spider plot? It's the first time I saw a spider plot I could interpret. You know, usually all the lines going everywhere. I don't know how to read it. But now this, it's all going down. All of it is going down. The rectal mass SUV is all down. And they have... Um, their symptoms get better. The abdominal pain, rectal bleeding, constipation, they're all going down to zero. Rectal bleeding's going away. And then actually, the duration of response is like nobody has progressed. It's just like continuing, you know? I don't know if they've pr produced updated results, but last I heard, no one, has re no one has relapsed. And then when you even look at the endoscopy, it's like totally normal. Like everything is normal. The pet is normal. The endoscopy is normal. The pet is cooled down. The lymph nodes are normal. Nobody has, has progressive disease. It's just, you know, it's as much of a parrot, and then the, and the side effects of this are nothing like chemo RT and surgery. So is it a parachute? I mean, it's the closest thing I've seen in my career, where you had a 100% to 0% impact on somebody. It wasn't death, of course, because they weren't destined to die. We could have cured them with new adjuvant chemo RT and surgery. But you had a 100% chance of something that is unpleasant. Now, it looks like a 0% chance of that treatment. Okay, so I actually think this is very promising. So we got very interested in this because our question was, how do you design a study to assess this, okay, in a way that, you know, uh, you feel is fair to the participants, but also fair to the fact that maybe this was an unrealistic sampling. And so we published this paper called A Novel Trial Method to Test Interventions with Very Large Effect Sizes, the case of Dostarlamab and this thing. And our basic argument, and forgive me if this is going to bore you, uh, the basic argument is that actually I don't know if dostarlamab's any better than Evo or Pembro, let's be honest. It's all the same to me. And sometimes maybe I get a discount on Pembro, so I like the sound of that. Um, so what I suggest is every single person in your clinical study, it's really a randomized phase two, you enter into this and you're randomized between what you think are putative parachutes, so dostarlamab, Nevo, Pembro. If you only had one drug in class, you just give them that drug. And you just keep giving people that drug. You just keep enrolling. And it has a, but it has a stopping rule. 
And the stopping rule is when a certain fraction of relapse rate is seen in pre-specified rules. So I would say probably like 10% relapse. If 10% of the people relapse, we're going to put a pause on the uncontrolled part of the study, and we're going to automatically trigger randomization. And the randomization will be the, whichever one lasts the longest, winner of phase one, versus standard of care. And so this is a, what we call a, I think it's called a, is it a parachute study? Because if it's a parachute, actually, you'll never trigger it. You'll never meet the triggering criteria, so you'll never have a randomized trial, which I think is fair because it's working as well as a parachute. But if it is less than you think, it will trigger randomization automatically. Okay, so I think this is good timing, so we'll have some time for questions. Lucky, because <laughs> these slides were just made this morning. Okay, real-world evidence. What can it do? It can gauge how we're doing, how we are doing. Are we making progress? I think I've been to so many lectures where people talk about alkaline cancer and they were just game changer, miracle revolution. And I wanted to say that's in part true. I have that had that true, but it's also missing the story of those 22 years of life that are still lost. And you can't forget that because that's the difference between that and CML. The response rate is robust, but it's just not as durable as we want it to be. I think it can provide information on older and frailer and vulnerable people and that will be the great virtue and in an era where drug price is $200,000 per year of treatment and single-dose product is $400,000 for CAR-T, you have to have this data to push back on the price because the price is not justified by the real benefit in our real world in our clinics. But what do I think real-world evidence can't yet do? It can't yet tell us if our interventions work because it is upwardly biased and it's biased because we are biased, because we do more for people who look like they can take it. And, as, and I do the same. I'm, I'm guilty of it, too, because that's what it means to be an oncologist. You try to do the best for your person, and you have the human bias of optimism. It's the fu most fundamental human bias. And few of things of what we do are parachutes. Actually, almost nothing we do is a parachute. But when they do come, rarely, like maybe dostarlamab, we can innovate ways to really tease out if it works. Okay, so my closing thought for you, oncology. Our drugs cost more than ever. I entered this field and like, you know, my first few papers were always on cost. It's so much, so much. And I complained and complained. I complained about Cipolucil T, the Provenge, $90,000. Now, $90,000, I say, I take two. It's a deal. I'll take two of those, you know. But I used to complain. So it's only gotten worse in my career, 10 years in oncology. Uh, I think the industry, they do great things. They innovate great things. But they do seek the relentless expansion into pre-disease states. In multiple myeloma, we don't want to treat smoldering. I think soon we'll be treating MGUS, and soon we'll put Revlimid in the water, and time to MGUS is the end point. I don't know what we're doing. We are relentless expansion to early disease states. We want to have adjuvant, longer adjuvant. Instead of fixed course therapy, everything is maintenance. Everything is maintenance now. Always maintenance. We used to go fixed course because we want to give people treatment breaks. Now we just maintain everything. Continuous therapy. They learned from ipilimumab, four doses. That was a big mistake. Now Pembro is forever. You take it forever. You're on Pembro. You're not going to stop that Pembro. Evidence is the only thing we have that protects us from overuse, okay, and protects society from overpayment. And so I actually think oncology is very vulnerable. We're, we, we think we're powerful. We're vulnerable to being captured. Real-world evidence is a tool, but it can be used as a weapon for relentless expansion and treating people with more than they need and society spending more than it ought to. We, the physicians in the room, are the only people in this system going to push back. No one else will push back. The only the doctor taking care of the patient, and maybe the patient it's themselves, will push back. Although I do worry that some of the patient groups are influenced a little bit. It's not the average person in my clinic who does not participate. So we must use real-world evidence wisely, impartially, and for the good of 
our patients. And so thank you all for your time. Uh, future things to explore if you like this talk. I try to do videos on any interesting oncology topic on my YouTube channel. Uh, I think uh, Destiny Breast 4, okay, there's one, there's one oncology there. Um, if you have suggestions, you can email me and I'll try to do a video on it. I have a little letter, it's called the Drug Development Letter. You can sign up for free and you'll get a little update every time we do some trial work. I host this podcast, Plenary Session. It's actually popular in some European countries. Uh, and then we run this lab and I'll stop with this slide. Uh, I'm happy to take any questions. If you want to reach me, you can find me on LinkedIn or you can email me at this address. And we have a lot of people in our lab who actually we meet on Zoom twice a week. And so I have a lot of global collaborators. So welcome to collaborate too and would love that. So thank you all for the time. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to speak with you.